The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Keeper Cup podcast, a proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. I'm Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. Excited to have you here. We are getting ready to dive into positional previews. Now that we're into 2022, it's, you know, I feel like I was, I've, we've been saying it's time to start thinking about 2022 since like June of 2021, because in keeper leagues, you have to start doing that. But we're getting into draft season. It's getting serious now. And so we really got to get into this, huh? Yeah, at that rate, I think it's actually time to start thinking about 2023. It's almost time. <laughs> no, and I actually think as we, we go through our positional previews, 2023, 2023 will be a factor. It'll come up for, for sure it will, because I'm already looking at our, our top 10 lists and some of these top 10 lists, hard to parse if you don't have 2023 in mind. And so before we get into the content of the show, just a reminder to please subscribe to the show, leave us ratings and reviews. You can follow the show on Twitter at Keep or Cut. You can follow me at Chad Young, Pete at Pete B Baseball. Love to hear from you. Love to hear your feedback on the show, what kind of stuff you want us to cover. But for now, let's get into our positional previews. We are going to start today with corner infield. And what we're going to do for you in each of these positional preview shows is we're going to go through our top 10 list for keeper leagues and then discuss those. And, and a top 10 list for keeper leagues, Pete, that's that's not a redraft list. It's not a dynasty list. It's its, its own beast. It is. It's almost something that's like impossible to do, right? And and so naturally, we decided to do it where every keeper league is unique. And that's something we've been talking about since we started this show a year ago, where it's it's it all depends on your settings. And what makes it even more difficult to do is that what might be a value to me in your league might not be a value. And you might have a player that is is currently going in the first round. So if we were to start a keeper draft, you know, you might have a guy who's a first round pick like Fernando Tatis Jr. But in someone else's keeper league, they got him in the 20th round three years ago, and they're still reaping the benefits of that price. So it's it's a really hard thing to do, Chad. But for me, and I don't know about you, and, and we could have discussed this beforehand, but I'm actually kind of excited that we didn't. I considered in my rankings the next three years. Like, what does the next three years look like? And that's really long term for keepers. So I was weighing the short term closer, like year one, maybe a little bit more than year two and year two, a little bit more than year three. I'm not looking any further than that for sure. And I'm kind of looking at ceiling more than floor, because if you're especially if you're in a shallower keeper league, aim for that ceiling and and go for it. So 
I'm curious your thoughts, Chad, on on like what was going through your mind with such a ridiculous like rank keepers. It's oh, so, well, yeah. yeah, it's so wide open, and I so I, I think that that sort of three two to three maybe four year outlook is is the longest I'm willing to go. And so you know what that means for me is like when I think about age, for example, a guy who's like 29. There's no there's no discount for me there. I'm not I'm not looking at a guy who's 29 and being like, oh, this guy's a little you know. In four or five years, he's going to hit his decline. Like in a dynasty league, you have to think about that. In a redraft league, 29 is practically in his prime. It's it's not negative at all. In a dynasty league, 32, 33, you're starting to get a guy. It's like, man, I don't know how much value this guy has because he could disappear at any time. In a keeper league, 32, 33. Now I'm starting to. I'm starting to sort of back off a guy, right? That's where I start to hit a point where I'm like, uh, next two to three years could get kind of ugly for this guy. And that's a little, a little worrisome. Whereas like, again, in a redraft, you got a 32 year old who was great last year. You're not looking at him going, well, he's 32. You just don't worry about it. It's not, it's not a factor in redraft in the same way. And so I, it's, it is, it is sort of striking that balance. I think that the toughest challenge for me is like, I play, I've played in keeper leagues where it's like keep three. There's no cost, but you're only keeping three players, right? You're drafting 25, 20, whatever it is. And in those leagues, rankings are almost like redraft rankings, right? Because like there's no big value. If there's no cost, there's no value in finding your keeper in the 21st round. It's like your first three picks are very likely going to be your three best players and they're going to be your keepers. I also play in keeper leagues where you're keeping 15 players. And then all of a sudden the rankings move around a lot because, you know, the ninth or 10th first baseman off a board, the ninth or 10th shortstop off a board could be your best value as a keeper, especially if there's a cost associated with that. Is that something you thought about as you're putting these rankings together? I didn't take it so much into consideration. I did put more of an emphasis on youth. I think I probably did more than you looking at some of the names on the list, but Something you mentioned earlier when you referenced three a three keeper league where it's almost like redraft right in comparison to something that's a lot deeper. Like I play in several three four keeper leagues, and something I guess it's just more of a word of advice is the overvaluing of prospects does become a problem. Where I play in keeper leagues where there's no cost to keepers, so like if you do hit on that player, you got them forever, and it leads to people pushing way up on the board. Your Bobby Witt Juniors. I'm sure for this year, Julio Rodriguez as well. We're like, sure, you could end up with a steal there. But there's also a chance that those guys have a shaky rookie season or just a good rookie season. And since you're only keeping three, you look at your roster at the end of the year and you're like, oh, well, wait a second. I think I still have three guys better than this player. And I didn't win my title because I invested so much in a rookie. So now I'm not even keeping him and I just wasted a season. So it's... I got way off base from your question there, but it kind of all comes back to keeper leagues are so unique. Yeah, I don't think that's off base any at all, actually. I think that's exactly exactly sort of the point I was trying to make, and I think that we're trying to get at here, which is like, you know, in, in an auto new league, for example, where there, there is a cost to keepers, but you got 40 players and you could theoretically keep all of them if you wanted to. Like, it doesn't matter if Bobby Witt ends up being your 15th best keeper, because you can still keep him. The that when you have a shallower structure in terms of your keeper structure. Like it doesn't matter how deep the league is. The league could go 40 deep, but if you're only keeping three, you're only keeping three. And if there's no cost, then there's no cost. And so, like you said, if, if you've got a team where you've got, you know, you've got Tatis, you've got a 
you got a, an ace like Garrett Cole and you've got Luis Robert, right? So like there's a, there's a trio that somebody theoretically could have from last year that they decide they want to keep together. Is, is Bobby Wick going to be a keeper for you if you're only keeping three and there's no cost? Probably not. It's super unlikely. So that really matters. So when I do my rankings, I tend to assume, I wouldn't say like super deep, you know, keeping 40 or anything like that, but I am assuming you're keeping 10, 8, 10, 12, something like that. Enough that somebody has a real possibility that they're going to jump up into your keeper list from the 15th round, from the 16th round, or assuming that there's enough of a cost associated with it, that you're keeping the guy at the round that they were at or the round they were at plus one or two or something like that. That again, like either you're keeping so many people that Tatis isn't your only keeper or the cost is structure is such that Tatis maybe isn't a keeper because you may not want to give up your first round pick for him if you can give up a 20th round pick for wit, right? So like there, at least there's some balance there. So that tends to be how I think about it, which allows me to, push some young guys up my list a little bit but like you said not as much as you <laughs> yes yeah i was well for certain names yes i'll i'll be able to defend it i think i guess we should find out we should dive right <laughs> in and find out so here we go we're going to start with first base here are my top 10 first basemen my number one first baseman is vlad guerrero jr i can't imagine that's a surprise to anybody listening my number two is Freddie Freeman. My number three is Matt Olson. My number four is Pete Alonzo. I'm going to pause here for a moment just to say, Pete, you've got the same top four. Yeah. In a redraft league, I took Alonzo over Olson recently. I think part of that was just I'm excited about the Mets lineup, which like, man, about a dollar for every time someone has ever said that, right? But <laughs> I uh, said literally every year. <laughs> what you're getting at, you know, is the top four like... Is it debatable? Probably not. I mean, if you want to debate Alonzo versus Olsen, I'll listen to it. I won't listen to either of them over Freeman, and I won't listen to any of those three over Vlad. So that pretty much is what it is. But Chad, did you notice Pete Alonzo's strikeout rate this year? No. Should I have? It was under 20% in over huh. 630 plate appearances. 637 plate appearances. His strikeout rate was 19.9. 19.9, yeah, with a 9.4% walk rate. It's not like he was just swinging at everything. Right now, the the I, unfortunately, you know, you look at the the average, and it wasn't that great. It was it was two two sixty two, and that's because all he really increased was his out of zone contact, which is obviously not really what you want. But I mean, the fact that he's he's not striking out as much, you know, gives him a chance to get more hits, and I just found that interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, it, the the thing for me that that when I look at that as well as exciting as that is, Matt Olson, who's I th- I think the the toughest debate in this top four is Olsen versus Alonzo. Definitely. Olsen has a 16.8% strikeout rate last year and a 13.1% walk rate. Yeah. So you're looking at Alonzo and you're like, wow, that, that plate discipline number, like that strikeout number is really good, really improved. Olsen is still better. And, and so that for me, that plus the fact that I still think there's a chance that if this CBA ever gets signed and we ever get a season, Olsen may not be playing in Oakland. Like that is enough for me to think like, it's close. I would probably take Olsen anyways, but that that sort of pushes him over the top. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I for me, it's it's I like the top of the order for the Mets a lot more. 
obviously with, with Starling Marte coming in. I think both players are just super comparable. And Olsen, that's actually why I backed away because I, I fell into this trap with Corey Seager. I was convinced he was going to be a Yankee. And now all of a sudden he's a Texas Ranger. And that like turned everything around on me where fortunately I hadn't done my drafts yet because I, I'm less interested in Seager now than compared to when he was a Dodger, whereas I would have been more interested had he been a Yankee. And I, I just worry, like, yes, Olsen could end up in pinstripes or, or, or at Fenway, he could also go somewhere that's not so great. So I'm kind of I'm kind of holding is, out. I is there see anywhere Olsen could go? Let's let's leave out realistic or not, right? Let's just pretend every team in baseball was was interested in Matt Olson and could afford him, and Oakland could send him anywhere. Is there anywhere he'd end up that would lower his value versus Oakland? Lower his value, no. But going to a new park, adjusting to you know a new team and all that stuff, that always comes into play for me. And if it if he starts off in any kind of slump, whereas maybe in a better park that would definitely increase his value. Obviously, again, not to keep coming back to it, but Yankee Stadium, where you know most of his home runs go to right field, then I, I could see myself being a little bit concerned. Just like, all right, he was great in Oakland; it worked out there. Is he going to be able to keep this up? And like, they would never do it. But what if they traded him to Seattle? You know, like all of a sudden I'm a little bit worse in Oakland. And that's that's my thing is like, I'm not sure that him ending up in Seattle, that's sort of what I'm getting at. It's like, I was trying to think like, what are the worst case scenarios? He could go to Seattle. He could go to Miami. I think, yeah, if he was on any other team, it might be the worst case scenario is Oakland. So yeah, no, you're right. That's a good point. So I, I, I'm not, I'm just not that worried about it. I don't see that much downside. And to me, ranking him third ahead of Alonzo is not like the upside there is that he ends up in New York and I have to start debating whether or not he's catching up to Freeman. I don't think he does, but it becomes much more interesting to look at Freeman versus Olsen and pinstripes than it is right now, for sure. So those are our top four, Vlad, Freeman, Olsen, Alonzo. Now is where we start to break up. So I'll read the rest of our top 10 list. So the rest of my top 10, I had Paul Goldschmidt as my number five. Ryan Mountcastle is number six. Josh Bell, Jose Abreu, Reese Hoskins, and Trey Mancini. Those are my, my six, or my, sorry, my five through 10. The five through 10 for Pete, Spencer Torkelson, this is the one you're going to have to defend, my friend. Spencer Torkelson <laughs> all the way up at number five. Paul Goldschmidt, Josh Bell, Reese Hoskins, Andrew Vaughn, and Alex Kirilov. I, I think we have to start with Torque. I think that's, the, that's you know, we can look at the other differences because there are some differences between our list and there's some stuff worth debating here. But like, you're really putting Spencer Torkelson in the number five first base slot today. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I, I put a lot of thought into it. I mean, I guess the 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 first thing to point out because you and I were like the high people in the industry on Paul Goldschmidt and it worked out. He was awesome. And now I'm ranking a guy who has zero major league plate appearances over Paul Goldschmidt. So I, I'm not going to go deeper on Paul Goldschmidt, but I will acknowledge the 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 craziness of this ranking, but I mean First of all, Torkelson, we all know the hype, right? Number 1 overall pick pedigree. He's he's done very well in the minor leagues. Clearly coming this year. He might, depending on how the CBA shakes out, maybe he's their opening day. And I think if Torkelson is the opening day first baseman for Detroit, well, all of a sudden he's probably moving up everybody's keeper rankings, right? I mean, even if they already rank him pretty aggressively like I do, he's not going to go any higher. We already established the top four, but he's going to move up. And if we're talking about keeper leagues, well, then he's definitely the opening day first baseman next year, no matter when he comes up this year, which is going to be soon. Whether the CBA allows him in in April or not, we'll see. But it's going to be soon. Then he's he's 
probably most likely already a stud. He spreads the ball to all fields, tremendous raw power. He's not a nothing in speed either. Potentially he had five stolen bases in 525 minor league plate appearances. So that could be something. I don't know. I'm not holding out hope for it, but for a first baseman, that could be valuable. And he hits a ton of fly balls. His ground ball rate at AAA, it was only 177 or so plate appearances, was under 30%. So all of a sudden, these tools are like, that's this is all what I want from my first base position. Steamer loves this guy. 72 runs, 29 homers, 77 RBI, five stolen bases, a 259 average, and that's with a 129 WRC+. plus. So they really expect him to burst on the scene. And those numbers, it's it's 130 games, 525 plate appearances. So they're they're basically assuming he'll be up early May and stick yeah. around the rest of the year, something like that. Maybe it's even more of like a late April, and then he takes a little bit of time off here and there over the season. But it, it's not quite a full season. And so that, you know, you look at like that 29 home runs, that 77 runs, seven, or 72 runs, 77 RBIs. Next year, when they, if they give the same projection for him next year, over 650 plate appearances instead of 525. I mean, you're talking about another, you're talking about 35 home runs and you're talking about 80 to seven, 85, eight, 90 runs close to hundred RBIs. Like you're looking at a, a pretty impressive projection. And that's based, like you said, it's, it's just based on his minor league track record. So if he actually puts up these numbers, then that projection next year could be even better. My challenge here is, He's only got 177 plate appearances at AAA. If he goes back to AAA, which I think he will to start the season, and doesn't immediately crush again, it could be a while before he's up. And then when he comes up, he's got to adjust to major league pitching, and that's hard. And so, you know, you look at a guy like Jared Kelnick, who a year ago I would have said, I don't know, I I don't know that I would have immediately said that Torkelson right now is better than Kelnick was a year ago. And Kelnick really struggled. Now, Wander Franco didn't struggle as much. He was very good. So like, who you know, it, it can go both ways. But I just think there's a lot of risk here. And to me, in, in a keeper format where, like we said before, I'm only sort of looking two to three years out. I'm just, I don't know. I look at Torkelson versus the rest of the guys I have on my top 10 list. And it's like, I'm, I'm not at all confident that he's going to be better than them this year. And if it takes him two, three months to come up, he really struggles this year. He gets off to a slow start next year and then really comes into his own. We could be like, you. I, I don't know how confident I am that he's going to be better than those guys until let's say the middle of 2023. And if that's the case, I'm discounting the latter half of 2023 and 2024 so much. And I'm discounting 2025 almost to zero that I can't see in a keeper structure taking him over these guys. So I guess other than Jose Abreu, who I don't have ranked, when we look at those names past Torkelson, if we want to say 2022 for Paul Goldschmidt, sure. I I just don't know if I see a single season higher ceiling over the next three years than what Torkelson has. And I, I, after those top four, if especially if I'm I'm looking at ceiling and age, which again not the most important things to me when it comes to to keeper leagues, and, and this is another thing that ranges from from your league settings to the next guy's league settings, but it's hard to me 
it's hard for me to imagine that like Josh Bell over the next three years is going to be better than Spencer, Spencer Torkelson or that, that Ryan Mountcastle or Jared Walsh. Like I get, we haven't seen him yet, but like if you, if you did take Kelnick last year and you're keeping him again and two years from now, we look back and we combine his 2020, 2021 and 2022 or 2021, 2022 and 2023. I feel like most people are going to be pretty glad they kept him. And I think that's going to be the same case with Torkelson. So it is, it's a long, it's a longer play than I'd normally like to make, but given the position, I like it. So let me get just to throw out a comparison here, right? Spencer Torkelson in AAA last year, he said 177 plate appearances, had a 375 WOBA. He had 396 in AA, a 440 in, in high A. So it, you know, it came down from 440 to 396 to 375. Josh Bell last year, had a 352 WOBA, 366 X WOBA in the majors. I absolutely believe Spencer Torkelson has a higher ceiling than Josh Bell. But I think Josh Bell isn't a bad outcome for Torkelson. Like if if over the next three years, Josh Bell continues to put up a 350 to 360 WOBA, and Spencer Torkelson also puts up a 350 to 360 WOBA, nobody will call Torkelson a bust. Right, they'll say he didn't reach his ceiling, which is true, and that's fine. But nobody would call him a bust at that point. And so when I look at that, it's like I don't know. I I'm not sure. I believe that it's. I'm not sure how confident I am in any prospect. And maybe that's what it comes down to. Maybe I'm just like generally more skeptical of prospects. And I just I, I have a hard time looking at him and thinking, yeah, he'll just repeat what he did in AAA. And if he doesn't repeat what he did in AAA. I'm not sure he's better than Josh Bell right now. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, Josh Bell in particular, who I've, I've been a fan of and, and is another Statcast darling. I, well, like, there's I a think, reason I picked Josh Bell. Yeah, he's, <laughs> it's like I'm gonna make I'm gonna make Pete, make Pete have this debate about a guy I know he likes. <laughs> I do, I do really like Josh Bell, and I actually have him pretty high on my list. I can't remember if I have him higher than you. No, we got him in the same spot. He's he comes with his own warts as well, and so I think in a keeper league, like. In a lot of keeper leagues I've played in, if you're drafting Spencer Torkelson this year, and again, this really does depend setting to setting, I don't I don't think he's going too far behind Josh Bell in your draft. So then it's a decision of like, do I play it safe with Bell? Or am I going to bank on potentially getting a player who has like literal top 10 player in fantasy upside in Torkelson for almost the same price? And so for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna rank that a little bit higher. It, but again, that, that does come down to to settings because if you take Spencer Torkelson and let's say the 10th round of your keeper league, the 11th round of your keeper league, and next year you have to give up that level of pick to keep him and he doesn't meet those steamer projections and, and you're left with question marks, well, then you're going to wish you took Josh Bell because he probably gave you a better chance to win last season and it looks like that's all that would have mattered anyway because now you're not keeping Torkelson. So it's a risky move, but again, I, I look at the ceiling for Torkelson and I, I just... I need the guy on my roster and it, it, gun to my head. I'm such a compete now guy that maybe I do end up taking Goldschmidt over him, but in most keeper formats, there's no way I'm taking any of those other guys over him. All right. I disagree, but I understand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say that the 238 batting average at AAA, and you were citing Wobo, which is obviously a much better stat than batting average, but it, it was very misleading. He actually lowered his K rate from AA and his OPS was 881. He had a 233 Babbitt. Right. Yeah. Right. So, like, that average is, yeah, absolutely misleading. Which I think, like, if you look at the steamer projection, they're looking at a 279 BAPIP, a 259 average. 
that seems much more reasonable than the 238 average he put up at AAA. Yeah. And if, if he continues the plate discipline that he's he's shown throughout his short career here, like I, I think that average could be higher. But in his first year adjusting to major league pitching, to your point, a 259 is a pretty safe bet. Yeah. So looking back at our list now, I had Goldschmidt five, you have him six. I had Josh Bell seven, you have him seven. You had Reese Hoskins eight, I have him nine. Not a lot to talk about there. And so the names that are sort of other than than Torkelson, the names that are sort of interesting or different that are, are probably worth discussing. I have Ryan Mountcastle at six. I have, and I have Trey Mancini at 10. I also have Jose Abreu in between them at eight. Now that's, Abreu is a little bit of a different case. You've got, in addition to Torkelson, you've got Andrew Vaughn at nine and Alex Kirilov at 10. I'm, I, I'm sort of debating what's the right way to discuss these guys. We talked about Vaughn and Karoloff quite a bit in our last episode. And so maybe we should talk a little bit about first Mountcastle and Mancini. We can, we can finish up with Abreu. For me, when I look at Mountcastle, there, there's a couple of things that, that jump out to me. First of all, he was really good last year. He had 33 home runs, 77 runs, 89 RBIs. He chipped in four stolen bases, a 255 average that won't, won't kill you. Mancini... We've talked about Mancini quite a bit. He had a really good year. He seemed to fade late. I'm, I believe that he's going to come back healthier and stronger this year and get a full season out of him. And so that's that's part of the reason there. Mountcastle is also only 24 years old, which I think is very valuable and exciting. And I think for both of them, I think Baltimore's lineup is it hasn't been good, but it hasn't been terrible. And like. They should have Adley Rutschman coming soon. And they're like, I think there's going to be some growth in that team. And there's an opportunity where like, if Mancini has a more complete season and Mountcastle at 25 years old continues to develop and Adley comes up, like that lineup could be much better than it has been. And so like I had a tough time with Mountcastle versus Bell, just as an example. And I ended up going with Mountcastle sixth and Bell seventh. And the reason really comes down to like they played, they both played 144 games. Bell had 568 played appearances. Mountcastle had 586. Mountcastle had six more home runs, two more runs, one more RBI, four more stolen bases, and a 255 average versus Bell's 261, which for all intents and purposes is the same. And he's four years younger. And on top of that, and this is where the lineup comes in, I feel like. Mountcastle's lineup situation is on the way up, and I'm not sure that's true for Bell. And so that was enough for me to push Mountcastle up. Where did you have Mountcastle and Mancini? Were they were they far outside your top 10? So I'd say my next three would probably be the three guys we're going to talk about, uh, Abreu, and then followed by Mancini, and then followed by Jared Walsh, and then followed by Ryan Mountcastle. Overall, I, I agree with you about the lineup. I think Baltimore... Baltimore's hitting is on the rise, and they get some pitching prospects, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall on the way. Um, but I do think they're an offense on the rise, and Mancini excites me, right? But he is older. He did you know, wear down last year. We've talked about that at length and as to why that would have been. I just like other names more. I just find them more exciting. In the Josh Bell versus Ryan Mountcastle, though, particularly as it relates to lineup, this might be a cop-out because the, the Nationals lineup is atrocious. But if you get to hit behind Juan Soto, I mean, like... There's basically a guy on base in front of you once every other plate appearance. Like, yeah. Uh, so, like, that's huge to me. And Mountcastle 
kind of worries me. The league average home run to fly ball rate last year was 13.6. Ryan Mountcastles was 20.4. And this is a guy who was not coming into the majors with a ton of power. This was not supposed to be. He doesn't impact the ball that hard. He still hasn't in the major leagues. And then I look at the K rate and I could see some bottoming out potential where the K rate continues to be bad. It was 27 and a half in 2021. He was bottom 3% in chase rate, bottom 12% in whiff rate. And then the fly ball stopped going over the fence because he has an inflated home run to fly ball ratio. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, like a 250 hitter with 20 homers. And that's just not what I want out of first base. But then you brought up the age, right? 24 years old could still fill in. You know, we see power develop all the times in the major leagues. So it, I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility, but I look at his 33 homers and it reminds me of like Ellsbury's 39 homer season. Not quite as drastic, obviously, but like the numbers just don't support it. So it, he's going to hit in great ballparks obviously Camden and then Fenway and Yankee stadium and, and so on and so forth. But I'm a little cooler on him. I don't think I'm out on him if he's my 14th first baseman, you know, but I, I'm cooler on him than you see to me. I look and I see he's got a 114.6 max exit velocity. His barrel rate jumped this past year from 7.1% in 2020 to 11.8% in 2021. I see growth and continued growth potential there. We'll have to see. I think the other the other thing, just from a from a upside, and this ties into maybe the max exit velocity. But if you go back and look at his prospect grades, this is a guy whose future grade on his hit tool was a sixty. His raw power was a sixty. His game power, though, was still not caught up to that yet. It was a, a forty five was his current, and with a a fifty five potential for his game power. But if he can start to tap into that full sixty hit tool and that full sixty raw power. That's where to me, and that's what I thought. think what I felt like I was starting to see come through from him last year. It, it's not fully developed yet for sure. There is absolutely some risk there. I just think the upside is is high. Over the course of last season, he had a rough September from a strikeout rate perspective, but if you go month by month before that September, his strikeout rate was 31.3 in March and April, 33.7 in May, 23.6 in June, 22.6 in July, 19.2 in August, and then jump back up to 31.7 in September. And I haven't done a, enough of a dive into what happened in September, if it was just his first full major league season and things sort of got rough for him, but that trend down up until then is intriguing for me in terms of his ability to develop. So I, I, I totally get where you're, where you're going with that. Let's talk quickly about Jose Abreu. Uh, interestingly, I, like I'm shocked that I'm higher on him than you are because I wrote a first base busts article. I was just going to say, I, I read this article by some guy named Chad Young and I was like, <laughs> Jesus, I want nothing to do with Jose Abreu. So I took that into account. Yeah, he's one here. of my busts. <laughs> what can you say? But I actually, I mean, the, the reality is ranking him eighth is my, my point on him being a bust was I just thought his price was too high. And he's yep. going as like the fifth or sixth first baseman off the board. So I, I did drop him down a couple spots there. I don't know. The more you and I are talking now, even just sort of strategically, I feel like eh, maybe I should have maybe I should have pushed him lower. Maybe from from an age perspective, maybe I would take Hoskins over him. Maybe I would take like, you know, my we, we talked again already. I've got Mancini as my number 10. I've got Walsh at 11, Kirilov at 12, Votto at 13, Vaughn at 14. I don't know. Maybe one or more of those guys should be above Abreu. I, I probably can't push Votto above him, <laughs> given that 
Abreu's big downside is his age, and Votto is certainly no spring chicken. But yeah, maybe I should move him. I don't know. I'll have to rethink that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I considered Votto, to be completely honest, uh, just because last year was so ridiculous, and I obviously just trust the bat. With Jose Abreu, it really came down to something kind of simple for me, and, and that's batting average is still one of our categories. And what separated Jose Abreu from the rest of the first baseman was that he was going to give you the same power output as the other first baseman, except he's also going to give you a really good batting average. I mean, this is a guy who's in 2020 shortened MVP season 317. But even before that, if you take out 2018, where he mysteriously hit 265, this is a 290 to 300 hitter. And last year, that was that vanished. I mean, that was that was completely gone. It was backed up by the expected batting average. So his expected batting average was 251, which was even worse than the 261 that he posted. So now I look at that and I say, okay, well, if he's not going to give me an elite batting average anymore, and maybe that's aggressive to say it was just one season, then he's a 34-year-old with the same, you know, 30 homer, 100 RBI upside, and maybe that's low because he's led baseball in RBI over the last three years that, like, all these other first basemen have. Like, if his, if he doesn't have batting average, what the heck is the difference between Abreu and Josh Bell? Other than, obviously, lineup, but that's, again, I... Which is fair. I'm not going to line up on the upside and age on the downside. Yeah, right. So do they even each other off, particularly in a keeper setting? So I'm I'm cooling on Jose Abreu a lot. You should check out that guy's article. Seriously, <laughs> I don't know. I heard that guy's a hack. <laughs> so I think we've covered through our top ten. I think it's worth just sort of very quickly going over a couple other small notes before we move on to third base. First of all, from a, from a sleeper perspective, looking sort of further down my rankings. I think people have forgotten how good Luke Voigt was when he was healthy. And I, I think that he's, you know, I don't know if he's going to be healthy, but he could be <laughs> if he is. And if he is, and you know, there's so many questions with him, right? I couldn't move him up my list very much because like, I still think Matt Olson or Freddie Freeman could end up in front of him. Anthony Rizzo could be back in New York. We just, we just don't know. But if he's the starter and he's healthy, he's going to be a real good value where he's going in drafts. He is at NFBC, like the 29th first baseman off the board right now. So it just seems like that's just too low if he has the job, which we don't know. The other guy is is Brandon Belt, who we've talked about in the past. He had just a tremendous season last year, and I'm I'm sort of surprised he's he's going as late as he is, although he's not a top 10 guy for me. A couple other, I don't know if I'd call them sleepers, but maybe flyers, late draft guys that I wouldn't want to be relying on but are sort of interesting to me. Frank Schwindel, like – my biggest question about Frank Frank Schwindel is the track record is so spotty. Just it's just a guy who like hasn't like no team has ever wanted to let him face major league pitching, and there has to be a reason for that. But everything in his season last year actually looks pretty good. And then you, Yoshi Tsutsugo, who I was pretty excited about when he came over from Japan. I still think he's super talented, and he really put things together in Pittsburgh. And it was such a short period of time that it's hard to buy in on it. But he's back there and maybe he figured something out. And so those are just a couple of guys who I think I could see taking late as, Hey, if everything comes together, they can make a big difference. Yeah. Those are good calls for me. Two names that come to mind that are kind of forgotten about Yuli Gurriel, who just continues to hit. I mean, the power from two years ago, or maybe it was three. I don't even remember. Obviously it was a fluke, right? I mean, he's not a power hitter, but it's consistent average. And I like Carlos Santana still. I'm going to wait one more year before I'm completely out. Now they're one of their top prospects as a first baseman. I can't, the names escape me. Is it Nick Prado? Is that it? Nick Prado. They, but they also have Vinny Pascantino. So I mean, right. this is a, 
He's this gonna, is a nice little transition into the prospect discussion because sure. those guys are worth talking about. They definitely are. So Santana's going to have to hit, but like the plate discipline is still there. And the last two seasons, which includes the short in 2020, is like really low Babbitt. He's not a high Babbitt guy, but like really low. So if he can get back up to a 250 average with that kind of plate discipline, and I think the Royals lineup could, could, could be good. So like, I don't know. I'm not completely out of him. He's free in drafts. And I, the name that, that surprised me. Yeah. Even as a, Cleveland Guardians fan who has a deep and abiding love for Carlos Santana. I'm out. Really? I, I think, you know, he's been so up and down the last few years. He had a really bad year in Philly. He bounced back in Cleveland. Then he was down again in Kansas City. It's a tough park to hit in. He's going to be 36 years old just after opening day. I don't see it. And and then getting into those prospects, Pascantino and Prado, I mean, other than Torkelson, they are two of maybe the three most interesting prospects at first base in baseball. <clears throat> Cassis being the other. Thank you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're sitting there like, you know, Pete's actually sitting here right now. He's wearing a Red Sox jersey. He's got a Red Sox hat on. Cassis he's, he's got crazy. a yeah. He's got a giant model of Fenway behind him. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if I could see any Red Sox stuff. Oh, no, there is. There's a pennant. Yeah, I see it, a pennant. It's all here. I mean, it's it's you know endless. Um, there you go. It's just on the side wall there. It, it's harder in a keeper league, and it depends how deep you're going. And in auto new leagues, I think Cassis, Prado, Pascantino, Juan Yepes with with the Cardinals. I think all of those guys are worth rostering in that format. But if you're not going that deep, they're they're harder to buy into. But they are like Casas Prot and Prado in particular are guys who late in drafts I would be interested in because I think they could end up as the starting first baseman for their teams by the end of this year and certainly lined up to have those jobs for next year. And that is part of the reason for me. It's like if I think Prado can take over that job, then I don't know how excited I am about Santana. And it's not even that Santana, like, it's not that he can't have value while he's playing. It's just that, like, if I'm getting down to guys who are going in like like the 30th to 40th to 50th first baseman off the board, I, I don't know. I could take I could take Rowdy Tellez, who I at least think has a shot at some upside. I could take Miguel Sano, who I think at least has some sh- a shot at some upside. I could take Nate Eric Lowe. Hosmer, who I at least think is going to keep his job. And, and so Santana, there's just like, I don't know how much upside he has. I think he might lose his job. Eh, I'm out. Real quick on on Cassis, your mindset I think is the exact right mindset to have is that he he'll probably be the starting first baseman by the end of the year, based on some of the chatter I'm seeing on on Twitter and 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 some some drafts where I've seen him go. Like he's, I would be shocked if he starts the year with the team, and I'll be surprised if he's up before the All Star break. Dahlbeck had that great second half, which was nonsense. It was inflated by August. He came back down in September. I, I'm not excited about Bobby Dahlbeck, but then there's still the possibility. They're not out on Schwarber, and Heimblum really likes Kyle Schwarber. And if you bring him back, he's most likely a corner outfielder, but it does make things a little bit iffy at first base, especially for Cassis. I mean, you could consider it moving him down a little bit because if Dahlbeck busts, I think the Red Sox are more likely to give Duran a chance in the outfield and put Schwarber at first base than they are to keep Schwarber in the outfield, keep Duran at AAA, and call up uh, Tristan Cassis. So it's going to be a little bit of a climb. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think he's a... I'm not counting on him at all this year. Anything I get this year, I think, is is a bonus. And so that's why in most keeper formats, it's just it's hard to use draft capital when you get 
very little value. It just depends how deep you're going. Right. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk third base. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show Welcome back on to the second half of our corner infield preview. I'm going to start off looking at our top 10 at third base. This time I'm going to read through, I'm going to start with just the top three. So last time, first base, we did the top four, but in this case, we agree on the top three, Jose Ramirez, Rafael Devers, Manny Machado. I really don't think there's a lot to talk about there. I think like that's our top three. It seems to be everyone's top three. I think it's the right top three at this position in particular, like None of those guys is old, but none of those guys is that young. So like the keeper format doesn't really change things from anything else. It's just, those are the guys. Fine. After that, let's talk a little bit about our four and five, because we have the same guys at four and five, but in a different order. You've got Alex Bregman at number four. I've got Austin Riley at number four, and then we flip them for five. So I go Riley over Bregman. You go Bregman over Riley. Make the case for Alex Bregman over Austin Riley. Sure. I mean... if your settings reward walks, then I think it's a layup that it's it's Bregman over Riley. And I, I, it's aggressive to say because Riley had some pedigree himself and he performed outstandingly last year. Obviously, he's arguably the most important player other than Freeman. But Alex Bregman, I just feel like is being slept on a little bit too much. You know, we've we've mentioned the wrist surgery. I've mentioned the wrist surgery almost like every podcast now because he keeps coming up. But like it gives me hope that that he can come back. Like, yes. The power we've always kind of viewed as fluky, that 41 homer season. I don't think there was anyone after that season clamoring that Alex Bregman is now a 40 homer threat, whereas Austin Riley is. But I do think Bregman can just give you that overall value in a five by five setting that has an extremely high ceiling. I mean, we're we're talking like a, a most likely candidate to have or a likely candidate to have 200 runs plus RBI. He could hit you 30 bombs, even if he doesn't, it's probably going to be more than 20. And he's probably going to put forward a decent average and he's in a great lineup. Now, you could say a lot of the same things about Riley, but obviously the strikeouts are, are, are different for him. Bregman, I just he was an elite prospect. He got called up. He performed like one. Now he's dealt with injuries, but he's still young and all of a sudden he's healthy again. So, like, I, I'm not ready to shoot him down my board. Not that that's what you did, but I just got him in like shot him all the way down to five. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just got him in the 90s in in that that redraft league I'm doing. And I. I was shocked. Yeah, I agree. I think people are overcorrecting on Bregman. To me, the Bregman versus Riley debate came down to this is going to seem kind of crazy. I think Riley has like, I think his floor is better because I think he's going to play every day. He's going to hit a lot of home runs. He's going to get a lot of runs and RBIs. Like, and I, and I, I feel like I can bank on that. Yeah, he's more bank. Whereas I worry more about Bregman's health. I think the the power floor is lower. I think that because the power floor is lower, the RBI floor is lower. 
I like him better from an average perspective, which seems sort of silly given that he was 270 last year and Riley was 303, but Riley's 368 BAPIP doesn't feel like a thing he's going to do again. So I don't know. I, I also, I'll be honest, like if you're sitting in your draft room right now and you're debating between these two and you decide to go with Bregman over Riley, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a, it was a really, I went back and forth on them for a long time and, and it's, I think it's a tough call. I do think, I think the upside for Bregman is the upside for Bregman as a player, as a baseball player, is higher because I can. He's going to get on base at a higher rate. I think he didn't last year, but again, there's there's a big BAPIP component there. But I think the potential for one of the like, if one of these guys is going to have a 400 on base percentage next year. It's going to be Bregman, not Riley. And so, like, to me, there, there's more upside for Bregman as a player. But in the fantasy context where we're looking at average, not walks, or not on base percentage, where power makes a big difference, neither of them are really stealing you any bases. I, I think Riley is the more exciting play. So I agree. I think I think Riley has the potential to double up Bregman and homers. Like if Bregman finishes with 20 homers and Austin Riley finishes with 40, I don't think anyone's all that surprised for either of those numbers. I do think Riley has more bottoming out potential. And so when I look at it, it's been one year of him not basically being a bottoming out player. That does play a little bit of a role for me as well. Whereas Bregman before 2020 was a, seemed like a yearly MVP candidate. So I'm kind of I'm sure. banking on track record a little bit more, which goes against what I've said in the past. But I, I don't know. I, I'm very clearly just an Alex Bregman fan. And I guess I just got to be upfront about that. Not that I let that affect my fantasy decisions, but um, I just think he's a stud and, and I'm looking forward to him this year. I'm going to have him in a lot of leagues. Makes sense. So now let's look at the bottom half of our top tens. We have four of the same five guys here, but in a different order. So my five are Chris Bryant, Nolan Arenado, Anthony Rendon, Alberto Mondesi, and Cabrian Hayes. You have Hayes as sixth, then Arenado, who we both have seventh, Josh Young from the, the Rangers, the Rangers prospect, Chris Bryant, and then Mondesi is your number 10. This seems to be another case where where youth is playing up for you over track record, right? I mean, I've got Bryant, Arenado, Rendon as my six, seven, eight. You've got Arenado in the middle there, but Hayes and Young is the other two. I've got Hayes lower. I don't have Young in my list at all. Let's start by talking a little bit about Brian Hayes, just because we both have him on our list. You've got him at six. I've got him at 10. The question I've written down in my notes is how confident are we in Hayes being in this top 10, but I'm... I'm going to ask you, how confident are you that he's going to be in this top 10? I'll go ahead and, and, and make a, a, a clear statement on this. I'm pretty I'm confident. I am confident. I was going to say I'm pretty confident. Nope. I am confident that he is a top 10. I'm going to make a clear statement that I'm pretty somewhat <laughs> feeling a little confident. I'm just used to playing the fence. It's it's an easy way to go through life. But no, Brian Hayes is a top 10 third baseman for keeper leagues. I think is he's, he top 10 for redraft? I have him there. So yes. But I think there's a lot of scenarios where he's not. And I, the name that keeps coming to mind for me is Eugenio Suarez. So I just, I think, showed so much in the second I shouldn't even say the second half. It really wasn't. But showed so much in that last month or so that maybe he's still got a bat in there. Uh, and if he's back to even close to who he was, he, he is definitely a top 10. But it's kind of besides the point. I really like Brian Hayes. Um, I think there's more help coming on the way with Pittsburgh, right? All of a sudden, Brian Reynolds really broke out last season. Onyo Cruz is coming. And that's only going to help Brian Hayes, who figures as a, as a top third 
of the order, most likely leadoff hitter for them. I think that's going to let his runs play up. And something that really sticks out to me as I've been kind of dissecting this all offseason is stolen bases. And he was five for five in stolen bases in September when he was finally healthy. And that team had, you know, Anyo Cruz in the lineup. It had Brian Reynolds in the lineup. He was five for five in stolen bases. And I'm going to kind of bank on him as a stolen base threat for this season. So if he does get 600 plate appearances, I think 25 stolen bases is a, is a pretty, it's optimistic, definitely, but it's still within his range of outcomes. And I think that separates him at a position where you don't otherwise get stolen bases from. Yeah, it's within his range of outcomes. I, I think that's, I mean, last year he had 396 plate appearances and stole nine bases. And yes, there were five of them in September, but I, I'm not sure. I think 15 stolen bases is, is more a number that I'd be looking at than 25. I think 25 is, is possible. I don't think it's, I don't think it's particularly likely. I, I, I do have him in my top 10. I have him at number 10. The reason I couldn't move him up any higher is his ISO last year was 116, which is not particularly good. He had a 306 ISO in his cup of coffee in 2020. He was never a guy who was supposed to have great power, right? And so I'm a little concerned that that power is just sort of never going to play up. Now, on the other hand, he had a wrist issue last year. And so he's dealing with, you know, he's coming back from that and He's coming back from it in a, like, it feels very much like a, uh, the wrist might be why he had such a low ISO rather than a, this is going to be an ongoing issue kind of thing. And so I feel good about him bouncing back and having more power than he did. I just don't know that he can get back up to what he temporarily looked like he was in 2020. And so to me, that that's sort of capping his ceiling a bit. And And when I look at the guys above him, Leaving out Adalberto Mondesi, who I have at number nine, who we'll talk about in a moment. But when I look at Brian, Arenado, Rendon, I, I just think those guys are going to hit for more power. And I can rely on that power. And I can rely on their power more than I feel like I can bank on his speed. And I think that's to some extent the trade-off is am I willing to take his lower power output to get his speed? And, and I'm not quite sure I'm there yet. And none of Bryant or Arenado or Rendon are old enough yet that I'm really massively discounting their future seasons very much. I think the idea that it's more ba- it's more likely that Arenado hits 30 homers than Cabrian Hayes steals 20 bases is absolutely as close to a fact that is a non-fact as it gets. With that said, talking in a, in a keeper format, you know, am I going to be saying the same thing in 2023? And am I going to say the same thing in 2024? Almost definitely not. So it's definitely an age component, particularly as it relates to Arenado. With Hayes, though, like it was, you acknowledged the wrist injury, and that was ultimately the big one. That's the one that shelved him for months. And then he came back and slammed his helmet and he hurt his hand. So, hand and wrist injuries for a guy who already doesn't have a lot of power, as you said, I, I'm tempted to just write off 2021 at the plate. And, and and look at what he did in September, which it wasn't just the stolen base. I mean, he was hitting above 300. He looked like, okay, here's Cabrian Hayes. And I want to say his season actually ended with injury again. I think that I think the hand shelved him for like the last week or something like that. Whatever the case may be, assuming this long offseason has allowed him to heal up, and now we're talking about still just as young, now with a better lineup, the way we viewed him at the end of the 2020 season. Well, okay, and I'm, I'm back in. And I think for the power, the truth lies somewhere in between, right? He's, he's probably not the power guy he was showing in 2020, but I don't think he's as bad as he was in 2021. So 
uh, I'm kind of swinging the fences for an upside play here, but the stolen bases definitely play a factor. Yeah, and I, look, I'm I'm a big fan of Hayes. I just in in one of my other new leagues, I just traded a ten dollar Mike Clevenger for an eight dollar Cabrian Hayes in a league where I already have, I think, a forty two dollar Jose Ramirez. And so it's like it's good value. I'm pretty. I was already set at third base. I'm very happy with Ramirez there. I just traded for him earlier in the off season too, actually. But I, I'm high enough on Hayes that trading Clevenger, who I think is going to be very good, was an easy choice for me. And that's in in, in an auto new format where his speed isn't going to really bring a lot of value. So to me, it's it's his on base skills, it's his bat skills, and I think he'll have enough power to be valuable. I just don't pushing him up higher in my top 10 was was a challenge here. Let's look at at the players we disagreed on. So, you know, four of the five and the you know, we, we had the same five up top, four of the same five in the bottom half of our top 10s, but the guys we disagreed on, I had Anthony Rendon, you had Josh Young. Obviously age is a factor here. Let's start with Rendon. Are you just out on him? I mean, not ranking him in my top 10 at the position, is it, it feels like I'm out on him. In redrafts, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit higher. It's just, it, we're, this is a guy who, his production, and, and Anthony Rendon was awesome. His production really relied on volume. And so if that's not there anymore, and so he's more, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see the steamer projection. I don't have it in front of me. But if he's just a, a 20 homer, you know, 90 RBI, which would be a little bit higher than the average, you know, the average rostered third baseman, I should say, then like, I don't know why I'm paying up for that in a keeper league where he's clearly on the downslope of his career. If it was a guy yeah, who they've got him at 575 plate appearances, 21 home runs, 79 RBIs, 76 runs, a couple stolen bases and a 271 average. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I, I think that projection's kind of fair. So I just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to pay up for that in a keeper league. I, I think I like these other names better. And to be honest with you, I've never been that big of a Chris Bryant guy even though he continues to defy his, his stack ass data. So I, the fact that I have him over Rendon, I think kind of speaks volumes about how I feel about him. We've talked about third base in the past, and I, I don't want to change this to a redraft discussion, obviously, because it's keeper focused, but I'm choosing the, the Bregman and the, the Arenados and I wouldn't choose Cabrian Hayes over him in redraft, but I'm going to be really tempted to just because I am, I'm souring on Anthony Rendon. Rendon is interesting. Cause like you go back to, Basically, 2017, let's say, 2017 through 2020, and he had a 307 average over that four-year period on a 318 BABIP. And then this year, this past year, he had a 267 BABIP, and his average dropped all the way to 240. It's only in 249 plate appearances. There's, there's a sample size issue here. To me, there's a question here of like how much of this was just that he was injured, had a little bit of a rough stretch, got hurt missed a bunch of time and and was never right last year because if he goes back to being what he was from 2017 to 2020 and he's good for 25 home runs and a 305 average and now he's you know hitting in a lineup where he's yeah, I don't I mean is he going to be where is he going to hit in a lineup is he going to hit right in front of Trout and Otani right behind I mean like he's going to be in a real good spot to either score a ton of runs or get a ton of RBIs or both. That's assuming those guys are on the field too. <laughs> for sure. There's risk. For sure there's risk. To me, there's enough upside that he still belongs in that that top 10. And, and because like he isn't young, but he doesn't turn – he turns 32 in the middle of next season. And so again, I'm looking at his like 32 and age 33 seasons and I'm just – 
if I think he's going to bounce back this year, I'm not that worried about next year either. And I'm not really starting to worry about his decline until the year after. Now, there is some risk that that decline has already started. And so I, I understand that the, the floor here is that he really struggles. He looks like he did last year and he's kind of done. I get that. But I think to me, I'd rather take the upside that Rendon goes back to being sort of nearly MVP caliber then I want to take the bet on the guy you put up there, Josh Young. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you picked Young so high? Sure. Yeah. One one last thing on Rendon and kind of his defense is I think, I don't know if this is so much his defense. I think a lot of it will depend on the ball. And, and you can say that about any player, but like he needs to keep up in the power department to, to, to stay extremely relevant at the third base position where so many guys hit for power. And the same is true of Bregman. So if, if the ball is more for the pitchers and it's not flying out of the park like it was, you know, before 2021, then it, he that concerns me even more. On the flip side, if they go back to the juice balls, all of a sudden I think Rendon really could play up because unlike the other third baseman, he will have power in addition to batting average. But yeah, Josh Young, uh, he's intriguing to me. I think it's a good mix of skills. He's got decent plate discipline. There's a ton of raw power there. And I think Texas is like clearly, I don't know what Texas is doing, but they push their chips to the middle here. And I think he's, I think of all these prospects, Josh Young is maybe the most likely to start fresh with his team in, in April. It might not be the case. Again, I think. Who else is going to play third base for them? Right. Like, are they going to play Kiner Falefa as their third baseman? They're trying to trade him. And I think they're trying to trade him to like solidify Josh Young there. So I think he's got to be, I mean, even with the current sort of, CBA structure, assuming that's what we end up with, he's got to be up by May 1st. Right. Otherwise, why are they spending all this money? <laughs> right. What are they doing if they're not going to push their chips in and give him a shot? And if he does you know, succeed, he has a chance to really be in an optimal position in that lineup. I'm not even going to look at what roster resource has. They do tremendous work, but who knows what the Rangers are going to do with that lineup. But if he's hitting between Marcus Semien and Corey Seager, I feel like that's a possibility. And even if it's not a possibility in 2022, I mean, we're talking keeper leagues. I think it's very likely for 2023 and 2024 where they have this all three of these guys locked up. So I think the upside is definitely there. We're talking about really limited minor league data. I mean, he, but he is... 24 years old so i feel like he could be just entering his prime he's not like some 20 year old call up that is really likely to strike to, to, to struggle particularly with strikeouts this is ideally a polished player who's ready who could be inserted into a lineup that's a lot better than we thought it was going to be now i'll be the first to tell you though having him over having him over rendon is crazy to begin with but also chris bryant i think is 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 a lot but i'm in on josh young in keeper formats no way am I taking him over those guys or Mondesi for that matter in redraft. Yeah. So that the lineup and roster resource right now, they've got Willie Calhoun leading off, Simeon second, Seeger third, Adelise Garcia fourth, Nate Lowe fifth, Cole Calhoun sixth, Jonah Heim catching seventh, Nick Solak in left field eighth, and Kiner Falefa still is the third baseman ninth. If he starts the season in the majors or whenever it is he gets called up, I imagine he starts off hitting something like sixth or seventh, right? And maybe they put him between low and Calhoun or something like that. But there is absolutely like, I mean, if you told me that by the middle of this year, Simeon's leading off, Seeger's hitting second, and they have moved Young to third in front of Garcia, that seems totally plausible to me. Like right. there's there's there are other players in this lineup who might hit well enough to keep him low in the lineup. But there's nobody in this lineup other than Simeon and Seager who I'm confident saying like, 
they are definitively better than Young and should be above him in line. Like, I, I don't know if there's anyone else in this team that I'm confident saying has to hit ahead of him. So he definitely could move up. And that kind of works both ways, right? Because that also means that it's not that great of a lineup. It's not going to turn over as much. And if he ends up being a guy who kind of relies on volume a little bit more than others, it's going to work against him. But over the next one to three years, three years looking out, I, I, I like his value there. Yeah. And you can squint at this lineup and be like, okay, Simeon and Seeger, Nate Lowe is solid. Adelise Garcia shows flashes. Willie Calhoun's got some pedigree. Cole Calhoun is, you know, 34, but is, Dude is just smashes. Yeah, he hits just like hit, 30 homers all the time. It's so weird. Throw, throw Young in there. And then, you know, Jonah Heim's not a bad catcher prospect at this point, really, more than a catcher. But Solak was a guy we were high on not that long ago. So you can you can start to sort of squint and see a path forward there. Maybe Sam Huff steps up and and steps in. I don't know. I it doesn't it it doesn't look great. It doesn't look great. But can you can start to see how they could piece some things together? And I have to imagine they're not done spending. They may be done spending this year, but I have to imagine that that they are they made the, these are their their two big investments to kick things off. And that they're not done. So we'll have to see what happens over the next couple of years. But I think his his their long-term future is pretty interesting. The last conversation I want to have about our top 10s, I've got him at number nine. You've got him at number 10. What are you doing with Adalberto Mondesi? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we have them both ranked pretty appropriately. I think it represents, first of all, that third base is not, not that deep. Right. I mean, it, it's definitely like one of the trendy things in fantasy, the fantasy baseball Twitter verse right now to talk about how thin third base is. And it is Mondesi. It's just the range of outcomes, man. I mean, it's like it's this idea of, yeah, I don't want him. He strikes out too much. There was the threats about his playtime last year because his GM was basically calling him soft. But at the same time, do I really want to miss out on a guy at a thin position who could hit 20 homers with 50 stolen bases? No, when Mondesi plays, he's kind of awesome. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to do with that. So I didn't want to not have him. I'm not particularly impressed with the position. And the idea that he could steal 50 bases, 40 bases automatically almost makes him more interesting to me than a player like Rendon in a keeper setting. There's no way I'm taking him over Rendon in redraft. Yeah, I mean, you look, he he, pl- he got 136 plate appearances last year, right? Which is obviously the the problem, the, the number one problem, right? In 136 plate appearances, he had six home runs and 15 stolen bases. <laughs> so if you if you start looking at like, what if he got four times that, right? Which would only be in the mid 500s. We're not even talking getting to 600, 650. Which, Still an I yeah, right. You give him you give him four you give him four times that, and it's 24 home runs and 60 stolen bases. Now it's coming with a 230 average because he struck out 31 percent of the time. And like that's not new for him, right? But man. There is some upside there. And, and that's the thing is, I think realistically, I'm probably not going to end up drafting him anywhere because I think I'm still too low on him. Like at NFBC, he is right now the fifth third baseman off the board. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm never going to pay that price for him. So I think but part of that is NFBC has an overall component, right? Well, a lot of yeah. their formats have overall. So you're you're going for like, you're going for the big picture and, and we talk bus, about ceiling. Yeah. Mondesi's there. But then when I was looking at like, you know, 
I, I wrestled with him being ninth versus 10th with Hayes. I could probably move Hayes up. You may have convinced me I should put Hayes at nine and, and Mondesi at 10. But when I started to look at the guys who come after that at third base, it was like, would I take Yon Mancata instead of Mondesi? I think I'd rather take Mondesi's upside. Yeah. Would I rather take Luis Urias, Justin Turner, Matt Chapman, Eugenio Suarez? Josh Donaldson might be the most interesting, but he's got the same playing time concerns and the upside isn't as exciting. It's the floor is much higher, right? When he's on the field, he will produce better. I can I shouldn't say he'll produce better. I can rely on his production when he plays more than I can rely on Mondesi's, but the upside isn't it's not close. They might have the same power upside with with a 60 stolen base gap right. between them. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I had a hard time. I had a hard time moving him lower, even though part of me kind of wanted to. So let's take a quick look at some guys who are going later, who I think are sort of interesting. You already mentioned Eugenio Suarez. I don't think we have to talk about him in a ton of detail here. Jammer Candelario has, I feel like he's not, there's not sort of a clear path to him being a whole lot better than he's been. But the last two years, 297 average in 2020, 271 last year. He doesn't hit for a ton of power. He's got 23 home runs over the two seasons. He had seven in 2020, 16 the next year. That Tigers lineup is getting better though. And he had 75 runs and 67 RBIs last year. So like as a guy who could give you good runs, good RBIs and a good average, he's an interesting late round play. I think a few other names. We talked about Alec Bohm on our, our keepers draft last week. And I really, you know, I like Alec Bohm. Hunter Dozier, Evan Longoria, guys who have been good in the past. Longoria was good when he played last year. There's just a lot of risk with both of them. The guy I think is maybe most interesting is J.D. Davis because he just hits when he plays. And if the National League gets a DH and he's DHing for the Mets, or if he gets traded, and I think there's a very good chance one of those two things happens, I think he could be really valuable. Like, jump into the top 10 to 15 third baseman, maybe maybe even into the top 10 for this season because he's just that good of a hitter when he plays. But who knows if he's going to play. Any any sort of sleepers, flyers, late round guys? Well, then we can talk quickly about prospects. Yeah, the one that uh, it's just one and it's it's Kevin Biggio because like, yes, and I brought this up on Twitter and people are like, well, they, they're probably going to bring somebody in. Okay, well, it hasn't happened yet. And it's not going to happen for a while. So like as of right now, it looks like it's a platoon, but I think they'd love for Biggio to just take over the job that, that Marcus Semien is leaving behind. And I feel like we loved this guy. Well, not me. I was very out on Kevin Biggio, not to like toot my own horn here, but he was one player that didn't ruin my teams last year because he was going in like the third and fourth round of drafts, which was like, I'm sorry, what are you doing? But it seems like the only thing that needs to be adjusted with Kevin Biggio is he needs to swing more. And I don't know, I, I didn't play at a professional level, but like I feel like that's a fixable skill. So if Kevin Beer starts swinging more, it's not like his zone contact is that bad, then he's a he's a potential 2020 guy that you're getting for free. So I like him there. And he's still very young. And he's still young enough that his keeper value, he's like in a, in a league where you're keeping 10 to 15 guys, if you get him for free at the end of a draft, he could be a keeper for you. Right. In, in on-base leagues, he moves up for sure. Definitely. I think Hayes moves up for me in on-base leagues. I think Rendon moves up for me in on-base leagues. Bregman definitely moves up for me on base leagues. So that's, you know, in auto new formats, things like that. Those guys are a little bit higher. On the prospect front, we already talked about Young. The other two third base prospects who I think are interesting 
are Nolan Jones and Jose Miranda. I think they both should get a shot relatively soon this year. Jones has really sort of fallen off. Miranda seems to be more on the rise. I don't think they're that different yet, but I may I may change my mind. That might be me being a, a Guardians homer and being a little <laughs> too high on Jones. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll leave Jones to you, but Miranda, I mean, what more does this guy need to do in the minor leagues? The dude mashes. I think he could be sneaky value because he's, he's not much of a fielder, right? And he, I think he projects as more of like a DH, but the hitting, look at the numbers. They're absurd in the minor leagues for Jose Miranda. Yeah, he, he's been great. He's definitely worth taking a look at and definitely a guy who late in drafts and keeper leagues you should you should have your eye on. That about does it. We've gone through first base and third base. When we're with you next, I think we're going to hit middle infield next. We'll talk second base and shortstop in two weeks. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>